I want to read uh, the entire chapter as we're going to close it out today and just to remind us where we've been as we've spent many weeks in this uh, chapter written by Paul. And so I would ask if you would stand in honor of God's word this morning as we read through uh, chapter 13. Paul writes in verse 1 of chapter 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love, your eternal love, your perfect love, your unending, unfailing love. And Father, as wonderful as our spiritual gifts are and knowledge and prophecy and all these other things, Lord, they're all going to pass away one day because there'll be no need for them anymore. One day we'll be in your presence face to face. We long for that day. And Father, we pray this morning that you would just enlighten our hearts with your Holy Spirit. Help us to see the truth before us as we look at the last couple verses here in this chapter. Pray that you would just bless this reading of your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, for those of you for the first time here, it's, you might want to go back and listen to the other messages because you're probably going to have a lot of questions by the time we get done. But we've been in this for several weeks now, and um, you know we do have a church app, and you can download the messages there and, and listen to all that stuff. But the theme of this final section here in Corinthians, in chapter 13, is not tongues, it's love. It's God's eternal, never-ending, everlasting love. That's the main point of chapter 13. And because the Corinthian church had an improper focus, you might say, on what we would call spiritual gifts, they forgot that as Paul said in uh, verse 1, 
He says, if I speak of the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noising gong or a clanging cymbal. They were making lots of noise (laughs) in the Corinthian church, but it was not good noise um, because, unfortunately, the Corinthian church was more fleshly than spiritual. They had a lot of issues going on. Not that we're a perfect church because we're not. And the reason I know we're not a perfect church is because I'm here. (laughs) And I'm not a perfect person and neither are you. (laughs) So instead of the church being Christianized, influenced by Christ, you might say, it was being paganized. It was being influenced by the world. And we see that across our country today and around the world with churches that are being influenced by the world. They're looking for quick and fast ways to grow their congregations, and so they employ secular means that was never mentioned in the Bible nor intended to be used by the church. And uh, they basically look at it and say, hey, the ends justify the means. Their their buildings are are full. Well, maybe not now, because none of them are open. (laughs) But when they are open, usually they're full because they're telling people what they want to hear. And so we want to be gracious as we go through this, but um, they had a a failure of love in their church. They had gifts, they used the gifts, but there was a failure of love. They were more focused on themselves than they were each other, and that's never a good thing. If you're in a relationship where the person's just totally focused on themselves, that's not a fun relationship, right? Right? They were more interested in being seen using these these spiritual gifts that they had. They wanted to be seen by other people so that people could look at them and go, look at how spiritual they are, than really truly loving one another. And so Paul had to address this. He had to address the use, or should I say the misuse, of their spiritual gifts within their church, within the church here at Corinth. And so that's what this letter is. It's a letter of Paul that was written to them who he was there when they founded the church. He pastored it for some 18 months and passed it on to someone else and went on to start another church. But someone wrote him and said, hey, we got some real problems here in Corinth. These people aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing as new believers. They're falling back into their old ways. And they had all kinds of issues going on. And as we talk about the modern-day charismatic Movement, we're striving to deal with it in a, uh, you could say, a theological way, not a personal way. We understand people have different viewpoints on this. But even though we may not agree with everything that's happening in the modern day charismatic movement according to the Word of God, the emphasis in this chapter is that we still are called to love. We're not called to judge. We're called to love. And so, you know, if you have friends that are caught up in this movement and they're saying, oh, no, no, you know, I I have the gift of tongues and I do this and I do that, just be gracious with them. Love them. Expose them to the truth, but do it lovingly. And so we've broken this down over the last couple weeks in two different views of spiritual gifts. One is the non-cessationist viewpoint, meaning that the gifts 
are still valid for today and all of them are being used today, including miracles and signs and wonders and tongues or languages as it's known in the, in the scriptures. They're all valid. They're all being used today. They didn't cease, not one of them. That's what the modern day charismatic movement would believe. The other viewpoint, the cessationist view, would hold what we believe to be the biblical view of what the scripture text teaches, aside from any personal experience you may have. It teaches that the miraculous sign and wonder gifts such as tongues and healings and all that um, ceased with the conclusion of the apostolic age. After the church was established, the foundation was laid, there was no need to validate their authority any longer. Um, and we know specifically tongues was a, a sign to unbelievers, not even to believers. It was meant for the, the, the Jews of the day. And so we've gone through all those things, and we believe very clearly that the Bible teaches that these miraculous gifts given during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry and continued on through the apostles during that early establishment of the New Testament church, those gifts are no longer here. And we talked last week about, well, what about the people that claim they are? And we talked about what the possible influences could be that are causing this. But you have to understand, we're not saying that God does not do miracles. God is a God of miracles, amen? I mean, the idea that we're saved and sitting here in our right mind and able to open up the word of God, that's a miracle. And to be able to understand it, that's a miracle, and God occasionally steps into the natural and does something that's supernatural. That's a miracle. The difference here is that you have to understand these miracles and these signs and wonders and tongues and these gifts that were given to these men and these people early on in the founding of the church was given for the express purpose of validating their message. Just like Jesus was validated by the miracles he performed. The Pharisees couldn't answer him when they they saw the miracles. They said, well, you know, we can't argue with the fact that you're doing miracles, Jesus. The only difference is we think it's not by the power of God, but by what? By the power of Satan. Ouch. That kind of thinking will send you to hell. <laughs> because you're attributing the work of God to Satan. That's how blinded they were. And in this situation... What was happening was these apostles were given certain miraculous signs that, that when they preached the gospel, people would say, wow, they were doing the same works that Jesus did. They're, they're raising people from the dead. They're healing people. All these signs and wonders were going on. And after the church was established, history basically shows us that a lot of these miraculous things ceased. And it was individuals who had these gifts of miracles. It was people who could walk up to somebody and say, in Jesus' name, be healed. And they were healed completely. It didn't depend on their faith. It didn't depend on anything. Or people that could raise people from the dead. Now, I know that we have people today that claim they can do this. But I guarantee you, when you ask them to do it, well, the person doesn't have enough faith. I mean, think about it. If, if what they were saying is true, all you had to do was go to a Benny Hinn ministry to get healed. I mean, everybody that went to a Benny Hinn ministry would have been healed, right? 
Because the Bible doesn't say that the healing depends on your faith. It's the power of the healer. It's the power that's working in that individual. And so people have, over the years, used this as kind of a carnival act almost and engaged people to the point where it's come down, bottom line, to be just very blunt, dollars and cents. If you give so much, you'll get so much. And that's the message you always see on these TV programs and everything else. So we believe that these gifts have ceased. And it says so much in the text that some of these gifts will cease. Um, We're not saying these people are not Christians. We need to embrace them as part of the body of Christ. I think they're just a little mixed up in their theology. Um, Now, some charismatics will say, well, your pastor can't point to one verse in the Bible that says tongues tongues ceased, past tense. You're right, I can't. Because the text that tells us here, it says it will cease. (laughs) It will cease. The question is, when is the will? (laughs) When will that happen? We believe it happened when there was no longer any need for it. And it's not mentioned, by the way, after the book of Corinthians, pretty much, in the Bible at all, nor in history. And we went through all that a couple messages ago, not until the 1900s was it reintroduced into Christianity, specifically the gift of tongues, they call it. That word means languages, by the way. So a simple question to ask somebody who comes to you and says, well, I don't believe that because I have the gift of tongues. Ask them what language they speak. That will tell you very clearly whether it's a legitimate New Testament gift of languages, which that word means. It always means that. It doesn't mean baby talk. It doesn't mean babble. It doesn't mean anything like that. And we'll be getting into that in chapter 14. But we can't use a argument from silence saying, well, the Bible doesn't see, say that tongues ceased. It says they will cease. Because the Bible doesn't specifically state that God is a trinity either, specifically. We draw that conclusions from various verses, but it doesn't say that specifically. Nor does it say that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, specifically. You can't point to a verse in the Bible that says Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. You can't, you can't show me one. Now, we make that inference by other scriptures. That's how we learn and understand the scriptures, right? We put together, piece together biblical facts, and we understand that, wait, Christ's character and everything, to see the whole portrait of Christ, it points that he is 100% man, 100% God. It points that God is three in one. Just because we don't have a verse doesn't make it not true. So to argue that tongues haven't ceased because there isn't a specific verse is a pretty weak argument to use. So we've seen that love is essential in verses 1 to 3. Love is explained in verses 4 to 7. Love is exalted in verses 8 to 13. We, we looked at because it endures, because it says right there, it never fails. Um, because it exits, exists, uh, the, it, because it exists when gifts are no more in verses 8 to 10. It, we looked at that in depth. It tells us that prophecies will pass away 
Same word for knowledge. Knowledge will cease, will pass away. But tongues, it says, will cease. And the difference was that tongues will just just cease apart from anything else. It would just stop, period. Whereas prophecy and knowledge, it says, will be replaced with something. They will gradually pass away. And so that's why these gifts that we have, these spiritual gifts are only partial. And when you look at your, 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 your outline there, the impact of, of what is perfect is where we're at there in verse 10. Because it says, we know in part, we prophesy in part. It doesn't say anything about tongues. Why? Because in the writer's mind, they're gone at this point. There's no need for them. But in verse 10, it says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And so we want to understand what this word perfect is. In the, in the Greek language, it's a neuter tense. You know, you have masculine, feminine, and neuter. That's what this is. It's re- re- referring to not a person, but it could be an object. Um, the, the usage of that word perfect, it's used 75 times in the New Testament. It's used of completing a task. It's used of becoming mature, um, biologically growing. It's used that way in those verses. It's used also of maturity. And so he says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Well, what's, what's the partial? He's talking about knowledge. He's talking about prophecy. He's talking about the need for people to be taught and explain the word of God. That's what those two words refer to. Well, when is that? It says, when the perfect comes. So the question is, well, what is the the perfect? That's the big question. And by the way, in, in verses 8 and 10, it says in verse 10, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. That's the same word that's used back up in verse 8 when it says that knowledge and prophecy will pass away. So we're, we're, it's important that we understand what this perfect is. Now, some people say, well, it refers to the Bible, when the perfect Bible is <laughs> brought, um, some people believe that. And they refer to James chapter 1 where it, it refers to um, the Bible as the perfect law of God. James chapter 1. The problem with that is when the perfect comes, it says we will have no more need for knowledge or wisdom for preaching, for teaching, for prophecy, for interpretation. When, when the perfect is here, we're not going to need any of that anymore. By the way, we're not even going to need our Bibles at that point. Pretty amazing. You won't be carrying around your MacArthur Study Bible in heaven. We'll no longer need the written word because we will be eternally in the presence and full comprehension of the what? The living word of Christ himself. Well, why can't it be the Bible? 
Well, nowhere in this letter does he mention or allude to such scriptural completion. Paul doesn't say, well, when the Bible's completed, you're not, he doesn't say that. Um, I think the Corinthians would have looked at Paul, and when he said, the perfect will come, I think their mind would have went to Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, when Jesus was dealing with people, and he said, therefore, you are to be perfect, what? As your heavenly Father is perfect. So in the Corinthian mind, when Paul brought up the idea of perfection, they didn't think of, oh, he must mean when we're all done writing this book. (laughs) Because the Bible wasn't even completed yet. No, they wouldn't have gone there. They would have immediately went to the words of Christ. He must be speaking of when we're down the road. Paul was speaking of completed holiness. when we actually become what God promises us to be. If the perfect refers to the completion of Scripture, then prophecy and knowledge have already stopped. Right? Because we have the completion of Scripture. It's right here. So if Paul was saying, well, after you get your Bible complete, then prophecy and knowledge are going to stop. Has that happened? No. The mere fact that I'm up here teaching the Word of God shows us that prophecy and knowledge hasn't stopped. All believers since that time would have been without the benefit of probably one of the two most important gifts for proclaiming, interpreting, and understanding Scripture. Remember, the gift of prophecy wasn't just revelation. It wasn't just telling people what they were going to do next week. It had not that connotation. It basically meant speaking forth the Word of God whether it was the revealed word already, as I'm doing this morning, I'm I'm teaching you the word of God that's revealed in the scriptures, I'm proclaiming it, that's the gift of prophecy being used. Or if in the New Testament the word of God wasn't complete yet, they would have a supernatural gift of, of prophecy and be able to record the written word of God down as God revealed it to them. So the church would be in a tough situation without those two gifts. And we know also, because we looked last week at Joel chapter 2, and we realized that when Jesus, when God pours out his spirit in that future kingdom age here on earth, there will be lots of prophecy going on. As a matter of fact, it says your sons and daughters will prophesy. So if it's going to happen at some future event, Paul can't be saying here, oh no, it's going to stop when the Bible's completed. So another reason this word perfect can't, re- can't be the scriptures, the completion of the scriptures, is found when Paul says there in verse 12, it will be when we see face to face. For we see in a mirror dimly now, and we talked about how the Corinthians used to make mirrors out of metal, so they completely understood what a mirror did. That was one of the trades that was in the, in the, the city of Corinth. So when Paul used that illustration, he was very, being very practical to them. He wanted to show them, look, one day, even though now you look at your image, you know, you don't really see it very clearly. One day, you will be face to face. 
And Scripture gives a wonderful and reliable picture of God, but it does not allow us to see him face to face. Just because we read the Bible every day doesn't mean we're seeing God face to face. Matter of fact, 1 Peter kind of contradicts that whole concept in chapter 1, verse 8. Because 1 Peter says that no Christian, before or after the completion of the New Testament, has known the Lord as he has been fully known. We see that in, in verse 12. But in 1 Peter 1, 8, it says, Many believers, even of his own day, have not seen him. They have not seen him. Matter of fact, it says we love the one who we what? Have not seen. (laughs) And how much more blessed we'll be for that. Nor is it possible that prophecy stopped after the completion of the New Testament and that somehow it will resume when the tribulation and the kingdom come when there's verses that, that say that it will be going on there. Because we said that that verb will pass away, it means that it will be abolished completely and finally without ever restarting. Plus, it goes against the very idea of what Paul's illustration is here. He's not just saying prophecy will be interrupted, but love will continue. He's not saying that. He's saying prophecy and knowledge will be gone. Tongues will cease. The one thing that will remain, the one thing that will remain permanent is love. That's why it's greater than the the temporary gifts that we have. So some people say, well, it's the maturing of the church. Um, That would basically culminate when. When when is the church going to be mature? When the rapture happens, right? When the Lord comes back, when everybody's saved, it's going to be part of the church, and, and the Lord comes back for his church, and we're taken out of here. That's when the church is matured. But once again, it doesn't answer the question. There's still prophecy in Scripture during the tribulation and during the kingdom, after the rapture of the church. So it can't be referring to that as far as maturing in in the rapture of the church. I don't think it refers to the second coming of Christ either. Some people say, well, maybe it's the second coming of Christ. But remember, what what voice is that in? The, The perfect is in the neuter. It's not in male. It's not in female. It wouldn't refer to Christ in a neuter sense of the word. So it can't refer to his second coming, or it would have been in the masculine some people say, well, it must refer to love itself because in 1 John 4.18 it says, perfect love casts out fear. So it calls love perfect. Well, there it's feminine. So we have the same problem with the original language. I think there's only one answer here, and we mentioned this last week, that it's the eternal state. That it's the eternal state. It allows for the neuter form of perfect because the eternal state is neuter. It's not a he or a she, it allows for the continuation of knowledge and prophecy up to that point. What do I mean by the eternal state? I mean that after everything is done here and we're in glory. It fits the context here of what Paul's talking about with the love being permanent 
and all this other stuff as being temporary. It even fits the face-to-face reference that we saw in verse 12. But then face-to-face. Well, when are we going to see him face-to-face? For all eternity, it will be in heaven. Because that's the only place, it says, then I shall know fully as I have been fully known. So we, we believe that this, this perfect refers to the eternal state. Only then will we be known completely. Because our, our, our knowledge is so limited here. Even though we have the Bible, even though we have creation to look at, even though we have all this other stuff, we are only seeing just a hair of what God really is. Just a, just a small little sliver of his glory. Can you imagine what it's going to be like one day to be standing in, in glory in his presence? So Paul is drawing that conclusion. He's saying, listen... Corinthians, you're getting off on the wrong, you're, you're focusing on the wrong things. You're focused on all these gifts. Guess what? They're all going to be gone. They may be gone at different times, but they're all going to be gone. Focus on love. And then he says here almost in a, in a parenthetical comment at the end there in verse 11, he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. Some people believe that could be a reference to languages. He's referring to this gift that he just used here. I thought like a child. Maybe that's prophecy. I understood like a child. Maybe that's prophecy. I thought like a child. Maybe that's uh, knowledge. You know, he could be referencing those, those gifts there. Certainly, What he's doing is he's saying these are far inferior to the word of God. They're far inferior. So whatever this this love of God and this perfection that's coming, in verse 11 it shows us it's because it excludes immaturity. In other words, someone who is very immature probably doesn't have a very good idea about love. You know, you see that in young couples sometimes, right? They meet and they're all gooey and gushy and, oh, we're in love. Uh, okay. <laughs> no, you're infatuated <laughs> with each other. Love is something a lot more than that. And they learn that as they press on, if they do press on in that relationship. But see, here he's saying these gifts are elementary. They're ABCs. It's like a little baby. He's saying he's using the word child here. And he wants us to understand that, you know what? There's a, there's a lot of wonderful things, but some of them are meant for a period of time in our lives. And Paul would have understood this clearly because Paul came from a, a, a Jewish background in, in in Judaism, you, the boys basically have what they call a, what? Bar mitzvah, right? At age 12. And what do they do? They become a man. That's, that's that, that marks that whole thing. I mean, one day they're viewed as a child. After the bar mitzvah, now they're a young man. That's how it looks. 
In Greco history, they have the same thing when you become 18. They basically get your head shaved and they declare you a man. In the Roman culture, it was the same thing. It was between the ages of 14 and 16, but it was the same thing. They had certain, certain images that they presented to the, the young boy or put them through a certain process, and now, miraculously, boy, you know, it's the same, same day, but now after this event, he's now a man. And see, that's what Paul is speaking of here. The day will come when all this childishness is gone. And we will be face to face with Christ. We will be known as I am known, fully, full knowledge, full, perfect communion with the Lord. And he wants us to understand that very clearly. So this kind of love, this love that God presents, it, it excludes immaturity. And then in verse 12, it enables us while we wait for a greater knowledge. It says, For we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What's he saying? Face to face. It's used 11 times here. And it gives you the idea of a clear picture clear picture because right now we're, we're dealing with kind of a blurry vision we're not seeing clearly it says we're seeing dimly it, it speaks of obscurity it's like looking through a dirty lens on a camera or you know maybe if you're older and you haven't had your cataract surgery and your, your, your eyes, eyes are kind of cloudy Okay, you got to get that surgery so that, boy, all of a sudden everything's cleared up. You have limited vision. That's what we have now. We're, we're living in a day where we have limited vision. We don't know everything that there is to know. We don't see everything that there is to see. We know in part, he says in verse 9, we have insufficient knowledge. Limited vision, insufficient knowledge. That's what we carry around every day as a burden here on this earth. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have a blessing for us. He says in verse 11 that we're going to see one day face to face. In other words, all the blurriness, all the, the dim vision is going to be taken away, and we're going to have a crystal clear picture of everything. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known, we're going to have an incredible perspective. We're going to have knowledge like we can't even imagine. Psalm 139 talks of a little bit about that kind of knowledge. Kind of knowledge that, that God knows about us. So we wait now during this time of dimness insufficient knowledge, but we wait, why? We wait for that clearer picture. That's, that's the hope we have in Christ. So he's trying to point them in a certain direction. He's trying to get their minds off these temporary things. He's trying to get their minds off even their gifts and say, look, you need to focus on the love of God. That's the only thing that's going to last. 
It's almost he's saying you're acting like a bunch of children. And when you stop and you think about the modern day church, that's a pretty good description. You know, they're willing to battle over silly things like tongues. And they even turn to this, this chapter and also look at the verses on tongues. They want to know about what the verses on tongues mean. They overlook the ones that has anything to do with love. And Paul is saying, hey, wait a minute. You've got to stop and you've got to reevaluate your own Christian walk. Our Christian walks aren't caught up with just performing and exercising our gifts and doing all this just to be seen by men. That's, that shouldn't be the case. If we're not doing it with the spirit of love, then we're just one of those noisy gongs or clanging cymbals up in verse 1. Matter of fact, the end of verse 2, he says, you know what, without love, you're nothing. Nothing. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people within the church, within the church, I say quotes, but that are claiming Christ, that are professing Christ, but you know what? They don't, they're not showing much love. They're very quick to, quick to criticize and condemn. And, and I'll confess, my heart goes there too. But Paul's point here is that don't get caught up in all that. Be focused on the love of God. That doesn't mean you don't teach the truth. That doesn't mean you just compromise and just, you know, well, let's just all put our arms around each other and sing kumbaya. No. We want to be true to what God's Word is revealing to us. We want to teach the Word of God truthfully. We don't want to make it say something that it doesn't say. But at the same time, we want to do it in a loving, gracious way. And then the last thing here in verse 13, basically, love is, is greater than all these things because it excels all other spiritual blessings, everything. And so it kind of builds up. This chapter starts off and he's, he's kind of reprimanding him a little bit, but it's, it's building. And he gets to the point where in verse 13 he says, Now faith, hope, and love abide, but these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now faith, you know, we're saved by faith, right? I mean, we need faith now, right? Faith is having what, trust or hope in something that's not seen, the Bible says. So as a result of that, one day we will be seen. We won't need that in heaven. Faith and hope are, are temporary blessings. Now, I mean, there's going to come a time when you don't need faith because you will have everything in your hand that you believe for. You will be standing in the presence of Jesus Christ. I don't think you're going to need any faith at that point to believe that he is the Son of God. And you're not going to need hope. You're not going to be standing in heaven going, boy, I hope I get to heaven one day. My hope's in Christ. No, you're going to be there. And all of a sudden, all those hopes that you desired for all those years here on earth will be realized. And when a hope is realized, there's no 
more need for the hope. I mean, just think about it. You know, before Christmas, you know, the months leading up to Christmas, you know, the kids, you know, oh, we want this. Hope I get this for Christmas. Hope I get that. And what happens Christmas morning? They open it up and, boy, they get the gifts they asked for. What happens? They don't just say, well, well, I hope I get, you know, if they wanted a, a Lego set, well, I hope I get a Lego set. Well, you got one. They don't continue. Well, maybe they do. I don't know. <laughs> but we got to be careful with that, right? But, but I, my point is, is that once your hope is realized, you don't continue to hope for it. So that's, that's why it's temporary. Because one time we'll, we'll be at a future event, we'll be in the presence of God. Faith will be replaced by sight. By sight. We will know. We will see. Hope will be replaced by reality. So he says the greatest of these is love because love is the only thing that is forever. Why is that? The Bible gives us the answer. Love is what? God is love. Yeah. Yeah. If love were to cease, God would have to cease. It's one of his attributes. It's part of who he is. Love will never be replaced by anything, Paul is saying. Prophecy, knowledge, they're going to be replaced. Tongues, they've ceased. But love is going to continue forever. And basically what he's doing is he's setting us up. (laughs) In verse 13, he's setting us up in this whole chapter for what's going to come in chapter 14. If you jump ahead just a couple, well, the first verse there of chapter 14, what does he say? What's his conclusion? Pursue love. Pursue love and desire the spiritual gifts. There's nothing wrong with the spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts are a blessing to us. But he says pursue love. It's the only thing that's eternal, Corinthians. Stop focusing on all this stuff that's going to be passing away. Your gifts are temporary. Your abilities are temporary. Your talents are temporary. Your relationships are temporary. Your ministry is temporary. Your possession, even your faith, your hope, they're all temporary. But that one thing, that four-letter word, love, that's what links us to eternity and beyond, as Buzz Lightyear would say. Love links us to eternity. And I just put down there in your outline there, why is love greater than faith and hope? Well, because God is love. Because without love, we would have no faith and hope. Right? Faith and hope are contingent upon God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave. Because of its wider application, love covers a, a wider, vast application. Because it should be the primary motive for obedience and service. That's why we do what we do as a Christian, right? I mean, we do it out of love. We don't have love in our hearts, then we're not going to be obedient. We're not going to serve Christ. We're not going to care about other people in the church. Love edifies other believers. It's not just caught up with me, myself, and I, and that's where the Corinthians were. They were constantly focusing on themselves. They were constantly trying to build themselves up. 
And what's funny is even in the modern-day charismatic movement, when you ask a charismatic who speaks in tongues, why do you do this? What do they say? Well, it edifies me. It edifies you? Where in the Bible are you told to edify yourself? Where in the Bible are you told to build yourself up? We edify others. We seek to build up others. That's the heart of love. We're not to exalt ourselves. We're not to build ourselves up. Also, because love can do what faith and hope cannot do. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, just in closing here. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, look at verse 32. He says, be kind to one another. Paul's writing the Ephesians. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And then what? What's he saying in verse 2? Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He didn't say walk in faith. He didn't say walk in hope. If you don't have love, you're not going to have faith. You're not going to have hope. So love does what faith and hope cannot do. It's because of love that we can have the what? The forgiveness of sins, right? I think that we need to be reminded. 1 Peter 4.8 says, above all, at the end of his, near the end of his epistle, Peter writes, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. In other words, because you really mean it, not just out of duty. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. That's what the Corinthian church didn't understand. They were walking all over each other trying to get the best gifts. They were pining after the showy gifts, what got them in front of people so they could perform their little circus act. And Paul is saying, you got it all wrong. And lastly, because love does not depend upon things outside of itself in order to function. If you have love, you have everything. That's why the Bible says very clearly that when you become a Christian, when you come to Christ, when you repent of your sins and you realize, wow, you know what, I'm tired of carrying this burden of sin around. And I'm going to turn to Christ because the Bible says that Christ gave himself up for me because he loved me. God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't it neat that God doesn't say, you know what, I'll love you, but go take a shower first. (laughs) You're kind of dirty. You're kind of stinky. No, he says, you know what, come as you are. When you come to Christ and you have that forgiveness, you understand 
love. And the Bible says that the, the love of Christ is shed abroad in our hearts. We don't need to pray for more love as a Christian. We have all the love we're ever going to get. <laughs> we just have to utilize it. We have to use it for his glory through the power of the Spirit. And so now we're going to be taking a break from 1 Corinthians for a couple of weeks as we deal with uh, Christ's crucifixion resurrection coming up. But um, feel free to read ahead into chapter 14. And then you'll be prepared when we get there in a couple of weeks. Because then we're really going to tackle the issue of tongues more thoroughly. I know that, well, we've been talking about tongues for a couple of weeks, but in chapter 14, he goes over it pretty thoroughly. And so we're going to be doing that. And so let's bow in a word of prayer and, and ask the Lord to just bless his word to our hearts. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, thank you for giving us understanding of your word. Lord, help us not to be as immature children, but help us to mature in our relationship with you. Father, we pray that you would mature us through the reading of your word and through our prayer time and through our fellowship. Lord, thank you so much for these people who are willing to come out and actually sit together as the church, not fearful and closed away from some virus, Lord, but at the same time, Father, we're trusting you. You keep us safe. You keep us healthy. And Lord, we're so thankful that the church is essential. It's essential that we come together as the body of Christ and worship you. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless this teaching time to everyone's heart. And, Lord, if there's any here today who's yet to trust in you for for forgiveness of their sin, if there's anyone here today who's yet to look to the cross and say, Lord, I I need some relief here, I need some forgiveness I've been carrying this weight, this burden of sin around too long. I want to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I believe that Jesus lived. I believe that he died for my sins. And I believe that he also rose on the third day. And I want to expressly put my faith and trust in him as my Lord and Savior. If that's a desire that's on your heart this morning, I pray that you would pray that prayer to to the Lord. I don't need to lead you in a prayer. You can explain your own heart, your own condition to God. He will listen and he will answer. Be merciful to me, a sinner. He'll transform you. He'll change you. He'll make you into the person that he desires you to be. And you'll be free from that burden of sin you've been carrying around. Lord, we just ask that you would also just continue to equip us as believers. We live in such a hostile world today concerning faith, concerning Christ. And Lord, give us wisdom. But help us to be bold for you. Help us not to shy away from sharing your truth. And Lord, we ask that you would bless our time of fellowship as well over in the fellowship hall and the food to our bodies. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen, amen. Let's stand and we'll close with one last song.